The people of God appear to be without hope. Their nation had been destroyed by their own sin. They were exiled to a foreign land, to Babylon. There is no temple. There are no sacrifices. They do not have access to God. And so in the book of Ezra, we begin a generation after the exile. And yet hope appears unexpectedly. The mighty empire of Babylon has fallen to a king from the east, King Cyrus. God's purposes still stand. God will reclaim the promised land for his people. God will keep his promises. God proves himself faithful. And so, so we're going to read, I'm going to read uh, Ezra 1, and we'll take a look in the sermon at chapter 2 as well. Now, if you're looking for this in your Bible, it's, it's with the historical books toward the beginning of your Bible. You can find it on page 461, the book of Ezra. Listen as I read God's Word, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word, the Lord, the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build a temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Midradath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let me pray that God would apply his word to our hearts. Father in heaven, we ask that, that as we read your word, we would not merely learn a historical lesson about your faithfulness in the past, but that you would prove to us by the power of your word today your faithful, faithfulness to us right now. Lord, some of us come with excitement at the dawn of a new year in anticipation of, of what this year might hold. Others of us come weak and weary, just burdened by the, 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 the drudgery of life. Many come in sorrow and sadness, without hope. And so, Father in heaven, I pray that, that in your word we would find our true and lasting hope. In Jesus, our Savior, we would find the, the offer of salvation. 
Lord, we come because you are the one who speaks to us. We come to hear your word, for we need your truth. And so we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God had chosen a weak little nation. If you've read through the Old Testament, then you know the story. God called one man, Abraham, and told him that through him all nations on earth would be blessed by God. God's plan was to put Abraham and his descendants, this one little nation, like actors on a stage to display them for the world to see God's glory. The world would see God's greatness, God's power. To prove his love, God had rescued this little nation from slavery in Egypt. God meant for Israel to fill the land, the promised land, with his glory, to show the world his love. God had them build a tabernacle, then a permanent temple. God filled the temple with his glory. But God's people failed miserably, repeatedly. And so God banished them. Like the angels in the Garden of Eden after the sin of, of Adam and Eve, they were cast out and sent into exile, into Babylon. But still God remained faithful. Just as the judgment from Babylon came, God sent prophets to speak that they would return. Just as the judgment was coming upon them, God was offering the promise that he was still with them. He was offering the promise that they would return from exile. Just as God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, God would save them again. God promised them a new exodus, a return from exile. Now, as we turn to Ezra, it might seem so distant. Going back into the 6th century before the time of Christ, into the foreign empires on, on, the, on the distant shores on the other side of the world. And yet some of the questions that, that are asked in this book are questions that remain for us today. Pastor Jim Hamilton, when turning to the book of Ezra, poses some of these questions for us. Do you ever feel that nothing you're doing matters? Do you wonder what this world is for? what your life is for, what you're supposed to be doing. And maybe these are the kinds of questions we ask ourselves. Is, is this what life is all about? What am I doing here? And maybe we're, you're in a reflective mood because of the, the change of the calendar to 2020, because of the, 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 the promises you've made to yourself about what will change in this year. But we too often find ourselves just surviving. Not really sure why any of this matters. Maybe it's because of the endless stream of diapers, the cries in the night, the, the monotony of your days, and you think, what is the point? Maybe it's the monotony of a job that doesn't satisfy, a paycheck that doesn't feel like it's enough. Maybe as a student, it's the seeming nonsense of the stuff your teachers are telling you, and you think, when will this ever matter? When would I possibly use what I'm learning right now? Perhaps we wonder if what we're doing matters because we've set aside our careers in the final chapters of our lives. 
and we wonder, what am I supposed to be doing? Or maybe our questions, they turn from the practical to the spiritual. Does God care about what's happening? Does it matter at all? Is God going to keep his promises? And for the people of Israel and Judah, the people God had chosen, his people, they were lost in exile without hope. And yet God intervenes for his people. First, notice the surprise of the way in which this chapter begins, this book begins. God raises up Cyrus. Look again at verse 1 of Ezra 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it into writing. Do you see, the author of Ezra, which Ezra wrote certainly parts of this book, although this is taking place nearly a century before Ezra's life, and so he may not have been the final editor of, of all of these chapters, but the author here of this book is telling us, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. There is a divine ordering and purpose in the world. God is at work even on the grand political scale, even in the events that seem like they have nothing to do with God. And this would be a surprise, a surprise even if you were merely an ancient historian or, or, a, or a contemporary person trying to write the account of what was taking place in Babylon. Because just a few years before this, you wouldn't even have known who Cyrus was. He was a, a, a general of the Medes from the east. And yet, suddenly, he has taken over the, he was a, a vassal king, one who had to pay tribute to the king of Persia. And yet, when he gained power, he took power from Persia, he's become the king of Persia. And now the Persian Empire has stretched itself all the way into India, stretched itself now to the west to take over Babylon. Babylon, the impregnable fortress, the capital of the city, taken over by this king from the east. Even historians are surprised at how quickly events can turn. And yet God is not surprised. Because God had sent Isaiah hundreds of years before to say, oh, I will raise up Cyrus to rescue my people. Cyrus, a man whose, whose name even just a decade or even just a few years before, you wouldn't have dared predict would be the king of Persia. You wouldn't dare predict that he would have conquered Babylon, the great and mighty Babylon. And yet, hundreds of years before, when the prophet Isaiah spoke, we're told in Isaiah 44, God speaking of Cyrus, writing his name down so that historians could wait and see, God said of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. The shepherd language familiar to us in the Bible. The Lord is my shepherd. The leaders of God's people were to shepherd God's people, to lead them, to care for them. But, but God sends Isaiah to say, there is coming a man named Cyrus, of whom God will say, he is my shepherd. He will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. See, God, speaking in the past, knew that he would work. God, working on the grand political scale, sends Cyrus to, to, and moves the heart of the king of Persia to make this proclamation. Let the exile be done. Let the temple be built. 
Let the God of heaven have his people worship him. So do you worry about what's going on in the world around you? I mean, as you, as you scroll through the, the headlines, as you, as you watch the news feed, do you think it's just, it's, it, we're, we're hopeless? It's out of control when you think about politics or war. And yet, the, the scriptures tell us God is in control. Are you praying that God would show how he's at work, that God would be at work in your life in the most unexpected ways? The king of Persia who knew nothing of the people of God, conquers Babylon and decides that the the, the policies of the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrian Empire before to take people out of their land, it's been destructive to their kingdom. It's weakened then. And so his policy is, let the people be in their land so they'll be loyal to me. Let them go back and rebuild their temple. God moves the heart of Cyrus, perhaps for Cyrus' own selfish reasons. But God uses it to fulfill his promise. And that's exactly what Ezra told us, isn't it? Look again at verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, God moved his heart. Why? In order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah. Now, I've already quoted to you from Isaiah, one of the other great prophets. But Jeremiah repeatedly was sent at the time of the exile, at the time when the Babylonians were, were conquering Judah, to offer promises that God had not forgotten his people. We read in Jeremiah 29. You could flip there if you want. In Jeremiah 29, verse 10, this is what the Lord says. While the exile is taking place, while the judgment from God through the Assyrians and Babylonians, God sends Jeremiah to say this. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, God says, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. And now you may know verse 11, even if you didn't realize it was a promise to the exiles, because Isaiah continues, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all my heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from your captivity." God is keeping his promise. And it didn't even take 70 years because the 70 years of fulfillment wasn't from when when the temple was destroyed. Maybe the 70 years counts from when the temple is destroyed to when it's rededicated. Or maybe it counts the 70 years from when Babylon first arrived on the scene. It's 70 years for Babylon. It's not even been that long. It's only been 48 years. It's only been a couple of generations, and God is keeping his promise. God raises up Cyrus to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. God will keep his word. And yet we're so prone to doubt that truth, to doubt that God will keep his promises, that God will keep his word. And it doesn't take the the, the big tragedies of life to shake our foundations. It can be the little annoyances in life that make us doubt God's goodness. And perhaps that's why it's so useful for us to begin with a repetitive psalm, as we did at the start of this new year. The psalm in which, after just a few verses, you already know your part to recite. His steadfast love endures forever. A psalm that that just keeps repeating that so that the people of God have to keep saying it and hearing it, 
God's steadfast love endures forever. That's what Ezra is saying to us. In order to fill the promises spoken by God through the prophet Jeremiah, promises announced even before that by the prophet Isaiah, God raised up Cyrus to rescue his people. And do you see then that, that what, what God is doing, he raises up Cyrus and he is providing a new exodus. That foundational story from the, the beginning of the, the Bible, from the book of Exodus, when God's people, the descendants of Abraham, are slaves in Egypt. God rescued his people from slavery. And Ezra, the beginning of this book, is set up to show us the, the connections. God calling his people out of a foreign land back into the promised land to build a temple, to have a place to worship. Jeremiah had, had already made the connection for the people. The promises of Jeremiah of the return from, from the exile are, are scattered throughout the book. And in chapter 16, Jeremiah makes the connection between the return from exile and the exodus. The, the ex return is, is the new exodus. It's the new rescue plan of God. It's God doing what he has done before because he is a rescuing God. Jeremiah had told the people in chapter 16, verse 14, However, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when men will no longer say, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. Because when you think of the people of Israel, what do you have to think of? What are you forced to think of? God is the one who rescued them from Egypt. But, but Jeremiah says that's not how you're going to be spoken of. They will say, As surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. The return from exile is the rescue of God, the promised return from judgment. And we see some of the connections. If, you, if you're familiar with the story of God raising up Moses, God promises that they will have everything that they need. They are poor slaves with nothing, and yet God is sending them to build a temple to take over the promised land. And God told Moses way back when he called him at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse, verse 20. God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians. God is promising that he will, he will, he will be at work. And, and then Exodus 3, verse 21, God said, I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. And when we turn to Ezra, what do we see happening? The gold and silver that the people will need is given to them. That's what we read in verse 6 of Ezra 1. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and with gold, with goods and livestock. They are plundering the Persians. They are plundering the Babylonians. And Cyrus himself goes into the temple and finds the articles of gold and silver which Nebuchadnezzar had taken. Perhaps because what Nebuchadnezzar did was he took the statues of all the gods that he had conquered set them up in his own temple just to prove his God was bigger than their gods? Well, there is no God statue in Israel. The closest you could get is some of the utensils used in sacrifice, the gold and the silver. And so they were kept, not merely melted down, but, but kept to display the power of Babylon. 
And yet King Cyrus brought out the articles in verse 7 so that they could be used back in God's temple. And even the way in which chapter 1 ends with this this inventory of of all that's being sent back, this official list, we have the official decree of Cyrus, we have the the inventory list of what was taken back to the temple. But but look with me at verse 7. Not not at the number of things, but, but where we're told these things came from. Sheshbazar brought all these along when exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And why call it Babylon? The empire is gone. Who is the king? It's Cyrus, king of Persia. That city matters nothing. It's been conquered. But why? Why does Ezra repeat the reference to the city of Babylon? Because all of the promises in Jeremiah spoke of God's restoring his people from this city, from this empire, from Babylon. How did he do it? By knocking down the whole kingdom. By conquering a foreign king. God keeps his promises. And then in chapter 2, we have the, we, we have the march of the people onto the promised land just as God had done by working in the heart of Pharaoh, hardening Pharaoh's heart, God moved Cyrus's heart. Just as God had done by taking the gold from Egypt, he took gold from Babylon. And now he sends his people back into the promised land. Now, if you look at chapter 2, you might enjoy listening to me read it merely to see how my pronunciation of ancient Hebrew and Persian names is. Because this is one of those chapters, as you read in the Bible, that's a flip-through chapter. Right in your Bible reading plan, as you get to it, you think, I'm good there. Because we're tempted to just skip it all over. But do you see what God is doing? These very people, their names are being recorded. Why? Because they are the people of God. And where are they going? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 2 in Ezra. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. You see, the promised land is being refilled, restored, reclaimed by God. He is sending back his people And so I won't take the time to read all of the names, but just look at the names there in verse 2. Along with Sheshbazar back in chapter 1, who is the prince, probably in in some sense maybe has a connection to King David, but is the governor being sent back to rule this land. We'll find out later, though, that that verse 2, Zerubbabel, will become the governor, the one appointed to to rule. And who is he? As you read through the rest of the book of, of Ezra, you find out that he is the descendant of David. Who should sit on the king's throne? Zerubbabel. And who is Jeshua? Jeshua is the grandson of the last high priest to offer sacrifices in Jerusalem. He is God's high priest. God is sending back a king. God is sending back a priest. The temple will be rebuilt. That's the purpose for which Cyrus, a pagan king, is sending the people back into God's promised land. 
And yet, if we were to take time to read all the way through the chapter, you would see the, the names of the people, the descendants, some of them named merely by the towns from which they came, some named by their ancestors. And yet, when we, when we get all the way down to verse 61 of Ezra chapter 2, we read of the descendants of Hobiah and Hakaz and Barzillai. But verse 62 then tells us, these searched for the family records, but could not find them. And so we're excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim, until there was a priest who wore the high priest's vestments. Now, why does that detail matter? It matters because God is sending his people back in order that their sins might be forgiven. They need people who don't merely rely on the stories about, well, you know, I think my great-grandfather, you know, way back when, back in the Wild West, I mean, he was there with, with, you know, he he, he did great things. You know, I'm descended from somebody who was on the Mayflower. You know, where where you tell those stories? And some of you have traced them back and proved it, that your great-great-great-grandfather to the 10th degree is someone famous. And yet, God isn't willing to just let them say, I think I'm part of God's priesthood. They have to be able to show it. Because the priests who stand need to be the ones called by God to represent God's people. Because while Ezra begins with this story of great hope, it's in the midst of these horrible conditions. We'll see it as as we go through the rest of the book this this January, that, that there is a need for them to rebuild the temple, that there's opposition that they will face. But why does the temple matter? Because this is where sin can be forgiven, where sacrifices are brought. And so the reason that they're excluded is because if they are not truly priests, then they cannot stand as those that are considered clean in God's sight. They cannot offer forgiveness. It shows us the importance of our standing with God. We need God himself to intervene. And so as we go through Ezra, you'll see the ways in which this book points us forward to Christ. Through Zerubbabel, the the descendant of David, the restoration of the Davidic promises, the promises made that David's kingdom would last forever. We'll see it through the work of, of the high priest. And yet even here with the restored temple, we will see our great need for one who can stand in our place. And so we think of the way the the New Testament book of Hebrews describes the ministry of the one who is the great high priest. In Hebrews 4, at the end of the chapter, we read, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So when you ask that question, does any of this matter? I could sit down and talk with you about how your vocation matters, about how you serve your neighbors. I could talk with you as a, as a mother or father, why, why getting up in the middle of the night and praying for your child as you change a diaper. I could, I, we could talk in practical terms about why that matters. But does any of this really matter? Hebrews just answered it for us. 
You have a Savior who died for you. And so what you're called to do in this life is live with gospel confidence, with hope, that you were a sinner who needed God's intervention. You needed a priest to stand and offer a sacrifice for you because of your sin. You needed one who was perfect to die for you, the true Savior giving himself for you. And so when you, when you ask that question, does God keep his promises? Does God see us? Does God even care? Then you have your answer. God's steadfast love endures forever. How do we know? Jesus. God sent his son for us. God keeps his promises. God is faithful to us. God has sent a great high priest for us. Let me pray that God would continue to work as we come to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give faith to those that are gathered here without faith in Jesus Christ, that they would see in your word the, the promises pointing us to our rescuer, our Savior, our King. Father, we ask that, that as we have read your word, as we have heard it preached, Lord, now that you would apply it to us by the work of your Spirit. Father in heaven, I ask that as we come to this table, we would see pictured before us what we have just heard, that you are the God who keeps your promises. You are the God who is faithful to us. You have sent Jesus to be the Savior. So we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen.